So this morning we are in Acts chapter 21, which is the end of Paul's third missionary journey. He went on three different trips to go preach and proclaim and to plant churches. In the third one, he spends a lot of time in Ephesus as he travels back because his desire is to be in Jerusalem. He stops back at Ephesus and gives a speech, kind of a farewell, or Acts chapter 20, a farewell message to the Ephesian elders, the leadership of the church. And then he begins his journey back toward Jerusalem. And we're going to follow some of that with a specific conflict that he and those who are with him are having. A disagreement over what he should be doing. We've never disagreed on anything, have we? So that's where we will be this morning as we are at Acts chapter 21, finishing up the missionary journey. Some of this, detail, some of this is just kind of, uh, if you're a cartographer, you'll love it. Because uh, you can just follow the map along and go, oh, look, there they go. They're traveling along. So he's just giving geographical details and then a specific conflict as they are trying to get back to Jerusalem. And remember, another thing that goes on is they had money. They wanted to get aid to the church in Jerusalem. So there's a bunch of people who are with Paul, probably all representatives of the churches and the offering that they were bringing to support the ministry and the saints who are in Jerusalem. So that's like this. We don't, it doesn't talk about that in 21, but that's where we've been and that's what's going on. That's a part of getting back to Jerusalem is supplying aid to the churches. Well, here we go. This is Luke, the author of the book of Acts, narrating. And he's with them right now. That's why he's using third person plural. We, we, we. So he's talking about what they were doing together. And when we had parted from them... That would be the Ephesian elders. We set sail, and set sail, we came by a straight course to Kos, and then the next day to Rhodes, and then from there to Patara, and having found a ship crossing to Phoenicia, we went aboard and set sail. When we had come in sight of Cyprus, leaving it on the left, we sailed to Syria and landed at Tyre. We're getting closer and closer to uh, Jerusalem. For there the ship was to unload its cargo. And having sought out the disciples, those believers there, we stayed there for seven days. And through the Spirit, they were telling Paul not to go on to Jerusalem. When our days there were ended, we departed and went on our journey. And they all, with wives and children, accompanied us until we were outside the city. And kneeling down on the beach, we prayed and said farewell to one another Then we went on board the ship, and they returned home. When we had finished the voyage from Tyre, we arrived at Ptolemais, and we greeted the brothers and stayed with them for one day. On the next day, we departed and came to Caesarea, and we entered the house of Philip the Evangelist. This is actually Philip earlier in Acts, the same guy. He ended up in his ministry in Caesarea, and so now it kind of became like a you know, home base for him. So Philip, you know, he moved along, Ethiopian eunuch, all of that. Then he lands in Caesarea, and that becomes Philip the Evangelist from Caesarea, who was one of the seven from earlier in the book of Acts. And we stayed with him. He had four unmarried daughters who prophesied. While we were staying for many days, a prophet named Agabus came down from Judea. And coming to us, he took Paul's belt and bound his own feet and hands and said, Thus says the Holy Spirit, this is how the Jews at Jerusalem will bind the man who owns this belt and deliver him into the hands of the Gentiles. When we heard this, we and the people there urged him not to go up to Jerusalem. Then Paul answered, 
What are you doing weeping and breaking my heart? For I am ready not only to be imprisoned, but even to die in Jerusalem for the name of the Lord Jesus. And since he would not be persuaded, we ceased and said, let the will of the Lord be done. After these days, we got ready and went up to Jerusalem, and some of the disciples from Caesarea went with us, bringing us to the house of Nason of Cyprus, an early disciple with whom we should lodge. Interesting passage. Let's go to the Lord that he might uh, unite our hearts in this. Father, we are here. We hear your word, and we would ask that you would move in our midst to make it clear that your spirit would help us to see what is there That we, Lord, as your people, as your church, might understand what you have for us in this passage, and that we could live more for your son Jesus because of it. We pray it in his name. Amen. Okay. I just want to start, we have to remember the Apostle Paul a little bit. We haven't spent a ton of time with, like, biography of Paul or anything like that. So Paul was a man who was sure of his path. He knew what God wanted him to do. And a lot of that comes from Acts chapter 9 when Jesus shows up. Paul's on his way to persecute Christians. Jesus shows up. Paul goes blind and then stays for a few days. Another disciple shows up and is like, hey, Paul, the Lord Jesus, brother Saul, the Lord Jesus sent me to you that you might receive your sight, that you might have faith in him. And so Saul or Paul, you could call him either, he goes by both. It wasn't like a name change to his conversion like we like to think. It was just Saul or Paul. So Saul was there, and his something like scales fall off of his eyes. And he begins his ministry as the Lord had called him into it. Have you ever been around super intense people, like super intense that's how I kind of feel like Paul was. And for you super intense people, that is not an excuse. Oh, I'm just being like Paul. No, you're being a jerk. Don't do that. Paul was a person who was sure of what the Lord had called him into. He was sure of it. He was a person that when the Lord says, I'm going to send you to the Gentiles, he was like, okay, I'm in. And he committed himself for the years to come, to the proclamation of the gospel, and it did go to both Jews, but then he spent a significant portion of his ministry ministering to Gentiles, bringing them the good news that Jesus died and saves even them. And remember, as you read through the book of Acts, this Jew-Gentile conflict was something that they were struggling with. They didn't really understand, how does the Gentile thing work? Remember Acts chapter 15, they're like, oh, Gentiles should be circumcised. They must, like, we just got to go ahead and do that. Peter's like, eh, eh, no, I've seen this at Cornelius' house, this is not going to work out well. Like, you can't make people follow the law and expect them to also follow Jesus. That's a really confusing thing, yet we don't really take that lesson to heart, do we? We're sort of like, no, we just make a lot of laws, it's more fun that way. So Paul knew what he was doing. He knew what the Lord had called him into. He was committed to the missionary task. In fact, if you're reading, even read this in the book of Romans, as you get to the end, there's a little article about it that you can read online. It's called uh, Paul's Apostolic Passion. But there's an interesting just couple of verses where he's like, I have no desire to preach Jesus where he's already been preached. None. He's like, I don't want to lay, lay, you know, lay on anybody else's foundation what has already been done. So Paul was not, like, if we were like, hey, Paul, come pastor Genesis, he'd be like, I'm good, enough churches, I'm going somewhere else. Like, that would be his, his mentality. 
he did not have much of an interest in staying for the long haul anywhere. He wanted to bring the gospel to places that it had not been preached. And this is what he was about, and he was set upon it. He was sure of it. We have confirmation from the Lord Jesus speaking to him that this is what he was to do. And at the same time, Paul was a Jew. He was a believing Jew, uh, but he was a Jew. He grew up and trained in Judaism. He knew it backwards and forwards. He could recite you anything, right? I mean, Bible trivia, do not go up against Paul. You can just imagine like in middle school, it's like, okay, guys, Bible trivia, and they're in their little uh, Awana thing or whatever they had. And Paul's there, and everyone's like, I don't want to go up against that guy. He knows everything. He knows Old Testament backwards and forwards. He gets it. So he was just, he even says in certain passages, like, I was pretty smart. I kind of had all the training. I had all the stuff. I had all the ribbons, perfect attendance. I knew it all. I had it all. I did it all, and it doesn't matter. So when Jesus saves this guy, it's interesting because now he's like, just flipped. It's like, everybody needs to know about this. And if there's already people who know who, where it is and what's going on, not interested in staying there. I can encourage them, pray for them, whatever, but I'm going to keep going. Even he's like, I want to get to Spain, right? So he's going to Rome. He's making this appeal to Caesar, which is what we read about. Um, and before we get there, we have this interesting passage in Acts chapter 21. The guy knows what the Lord has called him into. And if you look back in chapter 20, verse 16, he wanted to get back to Jerusalem for the Passover, and I think this is part of him being that committed and good Jew. I want to get back and be with my people for the Passover. And if you remember, as you're reading to Romans 10, 11, you're seeing his desire. I wish everybody, my people, I wish that I could be cursed if everybody in Israel could know how good Jesus is. I would be fine with that. And so you probably you understand, if you kind of put those pieces together, why does he want to be back? He wants to be back to celebrate, but he also wants to be back because there's going to be a ton of people in Jerusalem that he can preach to, proclaim the good news to. So he has to get back because the Lord knows what he's called him to, and he knows what the Lord has called him to, and he wants to live faithfully as a Jew, and he wants to preach to his kinfolk because he has a deep affection for them. I mean, I'm sure all of you have something like that, right? There's just, there's just, some, there's just some group of people that you just love. You love them. Because they're your people. And whatever you feel in the day, these are my people. However you fill it in. That group that everybody else is like, that's crazy. Why are they your people? You're like, they're just my people. That's who I know. That's who I love. For Paul, it was the Jews. His nation. His family. The ones who he says, they've been given the covenants. They've been given the promises. They've been given everything. And they have the Messiah. And I want them to connect the dots to him. He wants to get back to Jerusalem, but as you read in this passage, what we see are significant conflicts. Now, the Lord has let him know, back in his speech in Acts chapter 20, wherever he goes, there's going to be trouble. Like, there's just going to be trouble. He's like, I know, wherever I go, there's going to be persecution and trial and suffering, and it, it all awaits me. And he's fine with that. And then we get into today's passage where we see an incredible conflict really brought up in two ideas. There's everyone who's around Paul, and then there's Paul. And everyone who's around Paul is essentially saying this, do not go to Jerusalem. Do not do it. Do not go. <clears throat> Look with me in Acts chapter 21. 
at one of their first stops for some time, they're with disciples, unload the cargo, they saw out the disciples, they're there for a week, and you look at verse 4, we stayed there for seven days, and through the Spirit, they were telling Paul not to go on to Jerusalem. There's no mention beyond that. It just, Luke just kind of says, and this is what they were saying, which is an interesting phrase because if you actually look this up, you're going to find people who go, Paul made a huge mistake in going to Jerusalem. Some are there, and they have good arguments for it. And you have people who go, Paul did not make a mistake, and they'll take it in two different ways. And it's that phrase, through the Spirit, that is where they are getting a little, like, they're not really sure. So one group will go, through the Spirit, the Spirit is clearly telling Paul through other disciples that he should not do this. Paul's just stubborn. He has suffered. He has been persecuted. He has been in trouble. He has had, like, he's been stoned and beaten and flogged. He's had all these things. It's not as if he needs to fulfill it more. Like, everything that Jesus said would happen to him has happened. And so they're trying to keep Paul away because they know what's going to happen there. And when he gets to Jerusalem, it's true. Riots start, there's kind of a coup to get him killed. Everyone's trying to get him out of there, so they move him on to Caesarea so he can stay there for a little while. Then he gets over on his way to Rome. And so clearly, they're like, this was, a, this was an anomaly. And so they'll say, like, Paul made a mistake. And I'm, here, I'm not here to tell you that, that's, you know, that you're some fool if you think that. There's a solid argument for thinking that. I don't really know what it proves either way. Because all we really have, we have to think about this when we read the Bible, it's just telling us what happened. Right? Like if I were just telling you what was going on in your life, I might have to read into it to go, well, was that the right decision or the wrong decision? I don't really know. It's just kind of saying what was happening. So on the other side, there's people who say this. They go, no, no, no. The Spirit was revealing to the disciples what would come. And because the disciples loved Paul, they didn't want it to happen. And so they're like, please don't go. Please don't go. So through the Spirit, through the revelation of the Spirit, they saw what was happening, and they did not want him to go because they had great affection for him. And they just thought, please, don't do this. Why would you want to do this? And on that side of it is when Paul is in Jerusalem, the Lord Jesus shows up to him and comforts him and is like, hey, just like you had to proclaim me in Jerusalem, you almost must go proclaim me in Rome. So, so Jesus comforts Paul while he's there in prison, while he's there in Jerusalem and speaks to him. And he's not like, hey, man, what'd you do here? But it got me thinking, right? Because really, wherever you land here, you have to at least leave the door open that you could be wrong. If you land on, clearly, Paul made a mistake, well, maybe he didn't, right? Like, there's no, there's no statement that he made a mistake. And really, you follow the ministry, it just seems to be the Lord's hand still on him and using him. And if you say he didn't, well, still, you've got to deal with that through the spirit part. And this is where I think it becomes so appropriate for us to stop for a second. There are times when people disagree over what is the most important thing in a moment. There are times when people who love the Lord Jesus are not sure of the best path forward, right? Agabus shows up in the next spot in Caesarea, Stephen's house. It's interesting because they mentioned Stephen has four daughters who prophesy, yet Agabus is the guy who shows up from Judea and prophesies. Like the daughters don't do anything in that that moment. Agabus is like, this is how it's going to be when you get there. 
And so then they're like, don't go to Jerusalem. Don't do it. So he has two groups of people where the spirit is active and the believers around him say not to do it. And it just, I have, I, I like passages like this. Because walking with the Lord, following after the things that he says and the things that he has revealed with conviction, it is faith that is demanded of us. And there are times when we do not know. And there are times when we do not agree. Probably, and you've heard illustrations like this before, probably when I have seen it the most, uh, because we were at a, uh, was at a church that <clears throat> had like significant investment in college students. If any of you were involved in college ministry, you'll see this. So college ministries, they really try to leverage those four, five, six, seven, just depending on how long it takes for you to get through, uh, years. Um, they try to leverage every single one of those because they know you ha- they have you at your freest moment. Right? Like, like, like you will have no more time than you have now. No more availability. Remember, like 19 hours or even like 12 hours of class a, a week is full time. And so like no more, you will be no more free than you actually are right now. And so ministries recognize this and they're like, we need to go after college students. And I bet if I just polled this room, many of you in this room will have had some significant growth in the Lord during that time in college if you were a believer at that time. Somebody grabbed you, you might have even come to faith in college. Uh, because Campus Crusade is really good at grabbing college students and training them up. So one thing that happens, though, is you have to leverage the summer. It's a little secret. You have to use the summer. Kenny knows. You've got to use that summer to get people exposed to things that they would not generally know about. And so you send them on trips. You want them to go overseas. You want to expose them to some aspect of life with the Lord that they would not get in some other environment. Maybe they get married. Maybe they have kids. Maybe they start a job. And now they don't have 12 weeks off. And so you have to use those times uniquely. The issue with students, it was so interesting to talk to like our college ministry staff about it. It was not the un- parents of kids, the parents were unbelievers. Unbelieving parents were like, cool, sounds great, I'm glad you're passionate about something. It was the believing parents who had issues with their kids going overseas for the summer. That's where the tension was. Unbelievers, like, great. So glad you love something and are passionate about it. It was the believing parents who would try to convince their kids that maybe God had something else in store. Which for one grieves me because anybody who knows the Lord should know their kids are not really theirs. If their kids are following the Lord, like you've done your job, right? Like praise God that you've gone after it. Your kids are following the Lord. That's what you want your children to do, right? Like that would be like the pinnacle. My children could just follow after Jesus and listen to him. And they're like, God wants me to go be a missionary to the unreached. And you're like, wait a second. Like I wanted you to follow the Lord. I wanted you to be serious about him. I just wanted you to do it nearby. And that's when it pushes on us. Because with great affection and deep love, we have people in our lives that if we know who won't see them again, it really messes with us. I think that's a part of what's going on here with Paul is that people will disagree over what is the most significant. They will disagree over it. Now, if you listen specifically in that interaction in Caesarea, 
They say you're going to be in chains. And they urge him not to go to Jerusalem in chapter 12. And Paul essentially says this, I must go. I must go. I have to. It's what the Lord has put before me. And so he's sure of it, and they're not. And they're not trying to, like, you know, they're trying really hard. They urge him to stay, to avoid the Jerusalem part. So listen to what he says. What, verse 13, what are you doing, weeping and breaking my heart? And he speaks to what the Lord has called him to. For I am ready not only to be imprisoned, but even to die in Jerusalem for the name of the Lord Jesus. I'll die for him. I'll be imprisoned for him. I do not care. And then Luke's, okay, we'll just give it to God. Verse 14, and since he would not be persuaded, we ceased and said, let the will of the Lord be done. Again, these are, I, I love narrative passages of scripture like this because they, you're, you're an insider, you're a fly on the wall to a conversation amongst people who love one another and what is the best thing that God has for that group. The Lord has given us Acts 21, right? Because we believe the scriptures are inspired by God's Holy Spirit, that they all, every word exists for us. And in God's kindness towards us, he gives us Acts 21, which is like, we traveled here, 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 we traveled here. Then we stopped here, and they told him not to go. Traveled here, traveled here, traveled here, traveled here. Then we stopped here. Agabus showed up. We urged him not to go. We just finally said, whatever the Lord needs. That's what we're for. And so we get to be a fly on the wall against first-generation Christians' strongest agreement about what is the most important thing in a moment. And I just think that's incredibly kind of God to let us see that. Because he didn't have to show us that. We could have just gotten Paul to Jerusalem, started the riots, whatever else. But there's this conflict that is revealed in Acts 21 that God lets us in on. And I think so often for us, we have a really, really strong desire for correctness. Well, who was right? We read Acts 21 and we want to know who was right, as if that somehow solves it. It doesn't solve it, because there was still disagreement. And you can't really build it backwards and go, well, if we could have redone it, we would have said it would be like this, or we would have said God had done that. Never once in any of Paul's epistles does he communicate regret for anything that he's done. Never once is he like, man, I, I want that one back. And that's not to say he doesn't have regret, or might not have had regret, but he never says that. Even when he talks about who he was before the Lord, he's like, that's done, that's over. I'm in Jesus now, it doesn't matter. All of those things, gone. And so we have then this moment for us in Acts 21 where they finally just go, let the will of the Lord be done. And that, that for us is I think what the Lord has. 
So often we're going to get caught up in the side argument if we just keep reading the Bible and if we're going to go, oh man, what should he have done? And you'll make your argument for why and someone else will make their argument for why not and you'll listen to sermons on why they think he made a mistake and you'll listen to sermons for why he didn't make a mistake and you'll read commentaries that say this and you'll read commentaries that say that and you'll still be left with you don't know. You do not know. But what you do know is that all of the disciples, regardless of their lack of uh, assuredness about the best route for Paul. Paul seemed to have no issue, but without the others, they commit it to the Lord. They commit it to the Lord. And so for us, as a church family, trying so hard to honor God trying so hard to walk with God, I would say this. We must disagree graciously and at the same time affirm that God knows. Disagree graciously and affirm that God knows. Because I want to kind of, I think, peel back what can exist in some of our hearts. And this is where we become like... uh, our, theology, our closet theology is bad. I'll just say it that way. We're like, we say this is what we believe, but we, we actually live like this is what we believe. And I think there's a flaw if we don't grab on to this idea that we're going to graciously disagree but affirm that God knows that if we don't do that, there's going to be something that goes on in us that might be going on and we don't even realize it, and it is this, is that we somehow think that if we make a wrong turn, what God is going to do is over. That we somehow think that if we do this instead of that, we go left instead of right, we go to Jerusalem instead of to Rome, whatever we might do, we have this thought that if we don't do the right thing, game over. Without realizing that God is incredibly gracious and incredibly concerned for his name and his fame and somehow still gets the job done. Some people's stories have about three decades of detours. And then they're like, and then finally I just gave up. It was time to listen to the Lord. Remember Jonah? Go here. Nope. Nope. (laughs) Not going to happen. I don't want to go preach to those people. I don't want the Ninevites to know that God is good. Right? I kind of want to soak it up for myself. That's what I would prefer, not going over there. I'm going to go ahead and go in a different direction. God's like, well, we'll see. And he goes. Sometimes God uses the same person. Sometimes God uses different people. But when we start to think that if we don't make the right decision, it's all over, we get into an incredibly us-centered view of how God works. I have to do the right thing. Now, do I want you, everyone in this room, to apply wisdom in their life? Yeah. Do I want everybody in this room to seek the counsel of other brothers and sisters who love them and care for them and will speak life and truth to them? Yes. Would I prefer everyone in this room not listen to bad advice? Yes. But I cannot control the environment enough to somehow subvert what God will do. 
And that for us should be incredibly comforting. And that for us is why I think the disciples in Acts chapter 21 can simply go, okay, okay, we'll go to Jerusalem, let's head on, and we'll let the will of the Lord be done. And there's no Acts chapter, there's no kind of other commentary that you see where Luke kind of just embeds this. And then we had a conversation with Paul where we told him so. Because that's the other thing. We love when, we, when like the thing goes badly, we like to kind of trail people that I knew this was going to happen as if that has some eternal merit. You, your one-upsmanship is somehow better for the church or whatever it might be. Oh, I, see, I told you, you made the wrong decision. Doesn't matter. Doesn't matter. That attitude is counting on us and not God. So there are times when brothers and sisters will strongly disagree over the best course of action. And where each one will have great arguments for why they believe that. Paul's like, hey, I know you guys weren't with me on the road to Damascus where I was blinded and Jesus told me what I was going to do, but this is kind of all a part of it. And they're like, you know that you have been preaching to Gentiles forever now? Like, this is, this is just what you're doing now. So they're disagreeing. It can be for multiple reasons, but let's just go ahead and assume it's the best reasons. For deep affection for the people involved. Deep affection for the people involved. Children and parents, friends together, people who have ministered together for years and years and years, Paul and those who are with him. There can be lots of reasons that this might be. But positively, I would say it's because of deep affection for the people who are around us, that we love them. And there are times... There are times when our love for people skews our confidence in God. Not going to deny that. Where, where our heart wins the day and God's heart no longer does. Where we think it's more important that our end gets accomplished than the Lord's end. That happens. But what we have in verse 14 is a mutual commitment to the Lord. And since he would not be persuaded, we ceased and said, let the will of the Lord be done. And I'm not even sure in that if Luke is embedding how he really views it should be. He wouldn't be persuaded, so we just stopped. Maybe, maybe Luke is giving us some kind of editorial feelings in that. But what does he still do? This is the Lord's. This is the Lord's. Now, I'm going to say this. Because I just need to be sure that we're clear. Because I, sometimes people tell me what I said in a sermon, and I'm like, I didn't say that. I'm pretty confident I didn't say that ever. But, right, if you ever follow, like in a speech class, there's right, senders and receivers, and it's on the job of the sender to be sure their message is, you know, coded and decoded properly and all those things. I am not saying that you can disagree on everything. I'm not saying that. There are things that Christians must agree on. That if you do not agree on them, you are not a Christian. Okay? 
So uh, I, we had quoted, uh, when we were doing the Gospels, the Nicene Creed, right? <clears throat> or the Apostles' Creed, I think is the one we actually went through. Um, the statements there, pretty fundamental to our understanding of Father, Son, Spirit, Church, Jesus' return. Pretty fundamental. You don't disagree on those and then go, that's it. And also recognize the disagreement here. The disagreement is not over some area of doctrinal purity. Okay? Acts chapter 15, there was disagreement over the application of doctrine, and they came to a conclusion. Okay? Acts chapter 21, there's disagreement about what is best for a specific person. You might be able to apply that to what is best for a specific church environment. What is best in how somebody else you love deeply might be walking with the Lord or trying to live out their call to make disciples of all nations. So we need to kind of differentiate between these two worlds. Issues of matters of the faith that are central to life and death in Jesus are not issues about the, or, or, that we can disagree upon. There will be disagreements over what might be best in a certain situation for someone. That's the disagreement that we have in Acts chapter 21. But it might be lived out when a kid goes, Mom, Dad, I want to go preach Jesus here. And you're like, wait a second. Wait a minute. No, 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 no. We're not cool with that. We want you home for the summer. You go, no, I need to go. I would encourage you, um, parents, I would just say this to parents whose kids have done that, are doing that, or will do that, as someone who has to deal with staff or parents do that, let them go. Let them go. Because it shows your confidence in God. Not your confidence in them. You're like, hold on, son, your brain isn't developed enough. That's why your insurance rates are more. And I'm paying for those things, right? Like, like you could be going that way. Does not work that way. I know that your you know, logical reasoning is not yet fully developed. It's a, it's a scientific fact that you still make bad decisions until you're 25. I'm saying, let the Lord be it. And if it's wrong, let the Lord correct it. And if it's right, let the Lord correct you. So let them go. Let them go. Let them pursue God with zeal. Let them give something a run. Let them be excited about the Lord. And, there are, and you're going to be like, oh man, you know, like, and don't do the thing where you're like, you're, that's going to die down. You're going to get less excited in time. Just you wait, which is like the kiss of death to joy. Just you wait until, you know, you get older, you have a family, you're going to be feeling the same way I did. That, that accomplishes zero. Let them go. To those kids in the room who are going to be the ones who are causing your parents all kinds of stress, know they love you. They are not trying to be Satan standing in your way. They're just mistaken, right? I'm kidding. They're not trying to be that because they have a deep affection for you. When you're at a church, either a place you have been or here at Genesis, and you go, man, I do not, I don't, I don't know why we're not going in this direction instead of that direction, or couldn't we do this instead of that? And he's like, yes. We could. But the Lord has given us one another and we can have confidence in Him. There'll be things that we do that some people are like, woohoo, this is great. And then some people are like, well, I don't like that too much. It's kind of weird. Yep. But when we have confidence in God, 
more than we have confidence in our own reasoning or in the reasonings of somebody else, we can just stand back and go, well, let the will of the Lord be done. Because he'll work his ends out. I want us as a church to have great confidence in God working out his ends. Great confidence in God working out his ends in us individually, in us as families, in us as a church. And also, because we love one another, know that there will be disagreement over what might be best at times. But when we have shared confidence in a great God who works out his ends, we don't need to get in significant fights over it. We finally just go, it's the Lord's. You're the Lord's. I'm the Lord's. It's his church. So we trust him.